0: The first reading is from the book of Genesis, in chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The second reading is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, beginning at the first verse. When a man takes a wife and marries her, Who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The Lord be with you. And also with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate."
2: Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Spirit would be given freedom to move in our midst, to teach, to heal, to hold, to comfort, that we would behold the truth and love of your Son, Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Once more, this Sermon on the Mount brings us into difficult terrain. Difficult, for this terrain, exposes wounds, awakens longings, and stirs up cultural confusion. For the Sermon on the Mount is bringing us into the difficult terrain of marriage and divorce. It was John Stott who said, There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God had meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. You might be here inhabiting just such a marriage, Divorce, something you secretly long for as a way of escape, perhaps its threat peppers your contentious verbal volleys, perhaps you're already in the process toward divorce, waking up every day to a nightmare that you wish would end. There is likely not a person in this room who's not been touched by divorce, for 40% of marriages end in divorce. You may, as a child, remember and hold the wounds of your parents' divorce, or as a parent have walked with a child through their divorce, and seen the impact, the deep pain on them and your grandkids. Divorces not only divide families, they divide friendships and communities as narratives are crafted and sides are taken. There's likely not a person in this room who's not been deeply impacted by divorce. It is part of my own story. I was first married 23 years ago. Four years in, I discovered the affair. We separated, sought counseling a way back. The affair didn't end. The marriage did. I found myself a divorced pastor, owning all of the judgments I had had about divorced people. And thinking that I'd lost all credibility as a gospel minister, I tendered my resignation. It is only by the grace of God and the work of His Spirit that I am even in ministry today, let alone upright. I share this as we enter into this difficult terrain, so that as I as preacher seek to expose Jesus' word to us, that I do so as one who is aware of the pain of divorce. It is a death without a grave. 20 years in and memories can still be triggered that leave me realizing that healing and forgiveness are lifelong journeys. Now before we press in to just two verses in the Sermon on the Mount illustrated by those longer texts that were read I want to give two preliminary thoughts. First, you may be single by choice or circumstance. And to speak of marriage is to awaken a wound, a longing, a desire to be married that you wonder if ever will be satisfied. There are a few moments in the sermon where I hope to touch on that longing, but also believe that this is not just a word for the married, this is a word for our entire community. Not just so that we can think rightly about marriage, but that so all of us as community might come around marriages in compassionate support for all of our sakes. Second, as we've affirmed in each of these ways that Jesus fulfills God's law, we must affirm again. Jesus speaks this way because he loves us. For love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is what the law is really after. And Jesus knows how we're made, knows how we flourish. And so he speaks this way because he loves us. So let us allow Jesus, in love, to lead us into this difficult terrain, to reveal how a new humanity, those who live in step with the kingdom, are meant to navigate marriage and divorce. And this morning, we're going to simply hear a word to them and a word to us. A word to them and a word to us. So first, a word to them. We enter into a culture that is vastly different from our own. And so before we can cross the cultural divide to apply this word to us, we first need to hear it as they would hear it. This is a culture where, grievously, women were considered property. Property of the men in their lives. Property of their fathers until they got married, and then property of their husbands. And as property, women were not able to get a divorce. Only a husband could be granted a divorce. As property, this had bearing on how adultery was defined. This was a culture in which there was only one victim of adultery, the man. If a man slept with another's wife, he had only committed adultery against her husband, not his wife she was property. Into that culture, Jesus speaks. Verse 31, it is also said, once more, Jesus uses a line that is awakening in his listeners how the religious leaders interpreted the law to them. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, Jesus here is pointing to the only text in the entire Hebrew Scriptures that said anything about divorce. It was part of our first reading. It was considered the lex talionis of marriage law. What do I mean by that? Well, lex talionis refers to a phrase in the Hebrew Scriptures, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. How awful, the modern listener says. It's encouraging vengeance. No, it's not. It's curbing vengeance. Because the pattern of the human heart is if someone wrongs us, not only do we want to get back what they've taken, we want to exact our pound of flesh. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was curbing that vengeance. The punishment must fit the crime. Lex talionis curbs injustice. And Deuteronomy 24 was the lex talionis of marriage law. It came at a time where men were divorcing their wives on a whim, which would leave women completely destitute. And this law was designed to protect women and curb divorces. How so? Well, the certificate of divorce had to be written in the presence of two witnesses, The reason for the divorce had to be agreed upon in that document so that the rumor mill or his disparaging comments wouldn't ruin her reputation. Her dowry would be returned to her and she was free to remarry. There was a degree of protection for women in this law. How did it curb divorces? Well, as we read it, you may have noticed that the law is full of if-then statements, all ultimately focused on not allowing a husband to put away his wife on a whim and then come back and marry her later. Are you sure? Because you're not getting a do-over on this. Now, Because this was the only text in the Hebrew scriptures that said anything about divorce, it was the go-to text to reflect on the grounds for divorce. And by the time of Jesus, there was great debate around the grounds of divorce separated by liberals and conservatives. Nothing much changes, does it? The conservative group followed the teachings of Rabbi Shammai, who focused on the grounds for divorce. If you find something indecent in her, And he took that to mean that only adultery was grounds for divorce. The liberal group followed the interpretation of Rabbi Hillel, who also focused on the grounds for divorce. If you find something indecent in her, and he didn't focus on the word indecent, he focused on the word something, anything. For Rabbi Hillel, the grounds for divorce cover the gamut. She burned dinner, spoke disrespectfully to his parents, was quarrelsome, even if he didn't find her appealing. This was grounds for divorce. Anything that was caused embarrassment or annoyance to a husband was grounds for divorce, according to Rabbi Hillel. Now, which interpretation do you think was favored and taught by our conservative Pharisees? You might think it was the conservative approach, but we would be wrong. They were men. The liberal approach was far more to their benefit. As one commentator noted, divorce amongst the Pharisees was an open scandal. And the conversation we read from Matthew 19 fills that out. They come to Jesus with a question designed to trap him Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? They had taken a concession meant to protect women and curb hasty divorces, not as a license to divorce, but as a command to do it. Verse 7, did not Moses command us to give? Every divorce to them then had godly sanction. Are you going to disagree with Moses and tick off a whole host of men? The trap is set. You have heard that it was said. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what are we to make of Jesus' response? Well, first, I think we have to see Jesus' deep compassion for women. Not only in limiting the grounds for divorce, But when he does affirm adultery as the grounds that Moses had in mind, he phrases it in a way that no one else would. Remember, this is a culture where only men were considered victims of adultery. And he says this, If you divorce your wives, you make her an adulterer. If you marry another, you are an adulterer. He's putting all of the responsibility on men. In a sermon on this text, Gerald Johnson points out, for the first time in history, men are being forced to come to terms with how their choices and actions affect women. In other words, persons, not property. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. But what ultimately sits behind Jesus' response is a deeper conviction around the nature of marriage. He invites the Pharisees in his longer conversation, not to focus on the grounds for divorce, but rather the purpose of marriage. And he draws their attention to the book of Genesis, where he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one. He's saying marriage is intended to be permanent. Death do us part. But there is something that separates what God has joined together except on the grounds of sexual immorality, affirms Jesus. In Greek, porneia, from which we get our word, pornography. Likely pointing to some physical or sexual unfaithfulness. He's saying adultery creates a new one fleshness with another. It cuts to the very heart of the covenant of marriage. Grounds for divorce, yes, but not inevitable. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. That is Jesus' word to them. A word of truth, press in to the purpose and permanence of marriage, but also a word of love, of loving, compassionate care for women. So if that's his word to them, what then would be his word to us? I think it similarly would be a word of truth and a word of love. Theirs was a culture where divorce was prolific, as is ours, just for different reasons. It's not only accepted in our culture, it's often encouraged. In the early 2000s, the Toronto Star published an article where a sociologist was encouraging people to think of their first marriage as a trial marriage. Consider it such. Work out the kinks, figure out how it all works out, and then you'll give your second marriage, your real marriage, best chance possible. But the stats don't bear that out. Two-thirds of second marriages end in divorce. In their book, Divorce and When to Let Go, the authors wrote this. Letting go of your marriage, if it's no longer good for you, can be the most successful thing you've ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step, a personal triumph. So what would be Jesus' word of truth to us? I think like the Pharisees, he would want to push us back to Genesis. This is how God designed marriage to work. I was reading something this week where the author highlighted that there has never been a culture, never a society, no matter how remote, that did not have marriage. It just makes sense, because God created marriage the day he created us. It's deeply ingrained in our humanity, but different cultures approach marriage differently. In more traditional cultures, the goal of marriage is family, children. It's the way for your future, the future of your family, your business, your name, your land, your your very life. For without children, there would be no one to care for you in your old age. We now have social safety nets to cover those things. So why do we get married? For love, we say, by that we mostly mean romantic love, born of physical attraction and sexual desire. We marry for self-actualization. Who will help me achieve my personal goals in life? In a materialistic, consumeristic society, we marry to attain or maintain a certain standard of living. We hear that behind some of the reasons that are given for divorce. I no longer love you. I'm not attracted to you. It's no longer working for me. I'm no longer happy. Jesus would take us to Genesis, which tells us that the foundation for marriage is friendship, companionship. Jesus's quote begins with the word therefore, meaning that marriage is in response to something. What is it in response to? The first not good of creation. It is not good for humanity to be alone. Therefore, I will create a companion suitable. Friendship, companionship is at the foundation of marriage. And I think that has much to say to us for those of us who are longing for marriage and those of us struggling within it. I mean, if you're single and longing for marriage, and I did the same thing when I was single, You walk into a room and open up a dating app, and you exclude four-fifths of your options based on physical appearance, attire, employment, not even considering whether incredible friendship or companionship could take hold there. Biblically, friendship is at the foundation of a marriage, and love and sexuality are meant to grow out of that, and our culture tries to reverse the order, and it doesn't work. And so, we over the years may have passed over many with whom friendship and companionship could have grown into something more. On the other side, if you're struggling right now in marriage, where is the place of friendship? I mean, there are seasons of marriage where career and family render you roommates, co parents. And then when the kids are gone, what's left? The recovery of what you both long for may be found in friendship. Carve out time regularly to connect with one another, not over work or the kids, but just to know and be known. Plan and protect a regular date night. Build upon that foundation of friendship. In a society where divorce is prolific and accepted, even encouraged, Jesus' word of truth must also include a word on permanence. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. It's the word to make a covenant. And a covenant is future-oriented. When I am at a wedding and presiding at it, I'll ask the person, do you take this person to be your spouse? Will you love, honor, protect And be faithful to them as long as you both shall live. And the response is not, I do. Of course, it's, I do. You look the best you're ever gonna look. I'm filled with romantic passion. I'm excited about our future. The response is not, I do. The response is, I will. It's future oriented. There will likely be seasons in every marriage where all you have will be those promises. And don't see it as a prison that traps you, but rather promises that will get you through when nothing else is. And on the other side, may be something far richer than you could ever have imagined. Marriage is intended to be permanent till death do us part. There may be more than a few of you sitting there considering your own or another situation and, and thinking to yourself, ugh, this is dangerous teaching. It's encouraging people to stay in harmful, abusive, destructive marriages. Jesus' emphasis on permanence does indeed stir up that reaction. In fact, in the verses after that longer conversation with the Pharisees, the disciples come to Jesus and protest. If this is what you mean by marriage, Jesus, probably better that we all stay clear of it. As a pastor, my heart has been deeply broken. By encountering the state of many marriages, where addiction, abuse, neglect have made home life a living hell. And I would love to sit down with Jesus and ask, what about these situations, Jesus? For these situations, in some ways, are far worse than adultery. Why there and not here? Well, the human heart has not changed. I am sure there were abusive marriages around Jesus. But I wonder if they were just treated differently. You see, this was an age where there wasn't a whole lot of mobility. The town you were born in was the town you married in, the town you died in. And the custom was that the groom would build a room onto the family home where he and his wife and their kids would live. The whole family, all the generations would live in the same home and the in-laws were just down the street. If there was abuse, you couldn't hide it. The family, the community would get involved. Perhaps this should be a critique of our own culture. We're so individualistic that we don't get involved in the relationships of others. That's their business, we say. It's not. It's all of our business. You see, when we all go to weddings, The couple are not the only ones who make vows before God. All of us are asked, will you do all in your power to protect and uphold this marriage now and in the years to come? And we say, we will. And yes, you may not have been at the weddings of the people around you in this church, in your neighborhood, but I think this is a blanket promise. We're committing ourselves to seeing healthy, lasting marriages. Are we doing everything in our power to protect and preserve those around us? If you're in a marriage where abuse, addiction, and neglect have deeply marred God's good intention for marriage, get out, speak up, get help. Allow us as your church family to lean into our marriage vows to uphold and protect your marriage by the grace, power, and love of God. But let us never get out of earshot of Jesus' words. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Meaning, let no one amputate. If you were to go to your doctor with a wound on your leg, and she said, I know exactly how to deal with that amputation. You'd say, no, 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 no. Let's try a whole host of options before we get there. I think Jesus is intending the same approach to marriage. Just as amputation is a last resort for a wound on your leg, so divorce should be a last option for broken marriages. But divorces do happen, and have happened, and we all in various ways fall short of God's good intention for marriage. And a word of truth alone is likely to leave us feeling abandoned in our pain, judged in our failings, and crushed by an ideal. So thankfully, Jesus doesn't only speak a word of truth. He speaks a word of love. For he's not only a teacher on a mount, he's a Lord, a Savior on a mount. If you are or have gone through a divorce, it is likely to have been one of the most painful experiences of your life. A death without a grave. A wound that hits the deepest recesses of your heart hear this. Jesus is with you in that pain. In Jeremiah 3, God speaks of going through a divorce. His people have turned away from his love. They've broken the covenant. And you can hear him expressing the anger, the agony, the longing, the desire for something different. Jesus is with you, with you in that. Jesus' word of truth may feel like judgment on your own situation. So what is his word of love to those of us who have been divorced? Well, The story of David, I think, might help here. David began a marriage in the worst of circumstances. Using his power to gain another's wife, he got her pregnant, tried to hide it by killing her husband, and then married her far, far away from what God intended. But David was brought to repentance. And God blessed and restored the marriage. And from that marriage comes Solomon. And from that lineage, Jesus. And Matthew, when he opens his gospel with Jesus' genealogy, he doesn't try and hide the abusive scandal under the rug. He exposes it. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He's beautifully, powerfully communicating that nothing is beyond God's redemption. That God can bring good out of all circumstances, even ours. So go to him. Seek his face in repentance, for he is full of grace and mercy. Jesus' word of truth may feel like a crushing ideal. So what would his word of love be to us there? Well, every time a marriage is mentioned in the New Testament it points to God's love for us in Jesus. Thanks, that just makes the ideal all that more crushing. How is it that I can love the other the way that Jesus loved me? But it's not just pointing to the ideal. It's laying before us the resources to live into it. As we are called to live into covenant faithfulness, to live into the I will, we are drawn to behold a God who is faithful to us who will never leave us nor forsake us. If the healing of our marriage requires us to acknowledge our wrong, we are drawn to behold a God who knows us and knows more about us than we're likely to admit in that moment and loved us and forgave us of it all. If the healing of our marriage requires that we forgive what the other is acknowledging, we are drawn to behold a God who at the cross lavished forgiveness upon us for far more than in that moment we're being invited to forgive. In this difficult terrain, Jesus speaks a word of truth and a word of love, inviting us to live into a new humanity in sync with his kingdom and lavishes upon us the resources of heaven that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit that brings his love home to our hearts has been poured out for us in Jesus. So let us go to him. Go to him with prayerful yearning that our wounds would be healed, that power would be brought to bear in our struggles, that his love and forgiveness would flow through us and out of us toward the other, that we might more and more live in step with the love and fulfillment that God intended when he gave to us the gift of marriage. So let us go to him. Let us go to him. Amen.
0: You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and
1: services.